Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 184. In this episode, we're talking about rehabilitation from human trafficking with Dr. Chris Gooding. Dr. Chris Gooding is assistant teaching professor in the theology department at Marquette University and a member of the Mennonite Church USA. And he's the author of the book that we're excited to talk about in this episode, Beyond Slavery, Christian Theology and Rehabilitation from Human Trafficking, published by Cascade. Team members on the episode from the two cities include me, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So this conversation with Dr. Gooding was sobering and powerful. Hearing what Dr. Gooding has been up to is is just amazing from his work in India, the surveys that he's done speaking to survivors and, and social workers, and the theology that undergirds his work is, is robust and the complexities of human trafficking from sex trafficking to labor trafficking and the various mindsets of captivity that he describes just really kind of underscores how complex this issue is and, and how the solutions are, are, are varied in, in, a, in approach given the nature of the situation. There's a lot of clarity here, a lot of helpful wisdom, and just uh, some amazing stories that Dr. Gooding is going to share with us. Of course, we have to say that there's a content warning on this episode. We'll be talking about sexual abuse and very serious matters uh, as it pertains to human trafficking. And so without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Chris Gooding. Well, Dr. Gooding, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to chat with you about your new book, uh, Beyond Slavery, which is about human trafficking, uh, published by Cascade. As a as a way to get going into this conversation, could you tell us a little bit about that book and and its thesis and what you're what you're trying to do? Sure. Uh, th- the book actually is uh, kind of the culmination of probably over 15 years of work. Uh, the the reason the way it got started was that uh, when I graduated from undergrad, I went and uh, moved to India and worked for an anti-trafficking organization for roughly a year. And um, the office, they had multiple different offices um, in various different parts of the world. The one that I worked at was specifically an anti-sex trafficking office, but I did uh, sort of interact with folks that were doing anti-labor trafficking work as well. Um, And the thing that I was most sort of that most impressed upon me as I was doing this work uh, was that um, the big hole uh, in anti-trafficking work is rehabilitation. Not that folks are not doing that work, there are definitely very dedicated individuals that are doing that work. But the, the piece that was, you know, if, if the hole is, if, if, the, if the bottom is going to fall out uh, of this anywhere, it's in rehabilitation. Um, just to give you some idea of what that, what that meant, um, one social worker that I, t- I spoke to during my interviews this time 
uh, said she worked for an organization and they could only count for about uh, three or four percent. Uh, uh, no, no, 7%, sorry, 7% uh, of their, um, uh, their survivors uh, after they had exited out of a formal aftercare program. Uh, and the implicit uh, worry is that they were going to return directly to a situation of enslavement. Um, it happens really, really commonly for a whole bunch of different reasons that I talk about in the book. Um, because there's a lot of, usually when you hear about anti-trafficking work, a lot of emphasis is done, uh, or if you read anti-trafficking research, a lot of it is descriptive. Here's what it looks like in this context, um, or it's on enforcement. Um, there's next to nothing out there that I could find at the very least written on rehabilitation. And so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to take on, to publish this book in particular, was to talk about some of the issues that happen uh, in rehabilitation and how um, especially sort of uh, Christian ethics, moral theology, political theology could could help uh, to get kind of a handle on some of these issues. Um, and so that's that's how this came about was just um, because most of the most of the networks that I worked with, um, they operated with the assumption that a lot of their survivors were going to end up directly back into a situation that was identical to the situation that they were enslaved in before, um, even after some kind of intervention had happened. Um, so that was that was what got me into into working on this book. Wow, that's amazing. So where in India were you doing this work? So my uh, my where I've lived for the longest time was in Mumbai. Um, and uh, that was where the office that I uh, was in was located. Um, the labor trafficking office that I that I coordinated with um, and that I, I worked with um, and did interviews for for the for the book um, was located in Chennai. Um, and their survivors are not in Chennai itself. They were mostly in rural areas um, in Tamil Nadu. So those are the two primary locations that I talking to folks in the book and they're the places I'm most familiar with. We we overlapped at, at Biola University for some time. Is that is that correct? I I, I don't know. I, so I was there from 2001 to 2005. Okay. I started in 2005. So okay. <laughs> I guess I guess we just missed each other. But but after that you you went straight to India. Um what was that process like? How did you get involved um you know coming out of undergrad or or maybe you went on to grad school? Tell us a little bit about about that. How 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 specifically did you get set up to to head to India and, and be involved in a, a ministry related to human trafficking specifically? Yeah, actually, when my students ask me what the pathway was toward the professorship, I oftentimes told, tell them that academia is a second career for me. The, the first one was law. Um, so I and I washed out of that because I, I started having some severe questions about the way in which uh, criminal justice systems run in the United States. So um, but uh, but yeah, for the for the transition over to India, I knew that I wanted to work with this specific organization, which does a lot more stuff internationally than um, just anti-trafficking work. Um, but I thought that you had to be an, L, an L2, at least, a second year law student in order to work with them. So I applied to the program, uh, the internship program in DC, 
um, and ended up getting rejected for it because they had some ludicrously uh, uh, qualified applicants that year. And so I got a um, uh, an email from the recruiter afterwards that said, you know, we want you to apply again because we thought that you were a qualified applicant. It's just that we had people with with like years of experience coming into this program on, on unexpectedly. And so um, we, we'd either like you to apply for an internship in DC or uh, we'd like you to apply, uh, or if you wanna go international, that's uh, that'd be open too. And, and so I, I he kind of threw that in there as a, as a, you know, well, maybe you might want this, but that was primarily what I wanted was to go overseas. And so I emailed him back or I called him back and I said, uh, and he, you know, kind of apologized, said, you know, yeah, maybe next year. And I said, no, I, I want to ask about the international placements. He said, oh, we can send you in like two months to either uh, to either Mumbai or um, Guatemala City. But if we send you to Guatemala City, you have to be fluent in Spanish. And so I said, well, I'm not fluent in Spanish. And at the time, you know, I was, I don't know, 22 years old. I was like, where, where the heck is Mumbai? <laughs> Um, and then he, he said, oh, we used to call it Bombay. And I said, OK, I know where that is. So um, that was how it happened. Um, so I, I, it was this this organization had um, was doing a lot of work um, in especially spaces like Biola talking about their work. And so, um, you know, it impressed me enough that I wanted to uh, sort of apply. And sure enough, they they uh, um, they brought me to D.C. They put me through a training and then they sent me. Uh, like a month later to India for a year. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's amazing. So, you, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that your book is really trying to fill a gap with regard to rehabilitation. Um, and you mentioned, you know, some of the struggles with rehabilitation and some of the issues of sort of uh, people finding themselves back in um, situations of enslavement. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the work that that you're that you're providing and as you're filling that gap with regard to rehabilitation some things that you um are are promoting uh, suggesting uh in in that in that vein yeah so there are there are six chapters to the book um two of which one of which is a general overview of what slavery is uh, and then another is is sort of trying to provide a theological abolitionist portrait that folks can kind of work out of. Um, the remaining four chapters are on four specific issues in rehabilitation, and they run the gamut. Um, most of them affect both labor trafficking survivors and sex trafficking survivors. I tried to, you know, stick to what was common to them. Um, and it's it's a it's a mix of things. In some cases, I, I found programs that are working splendidly, and I was I was just sort of holding them up as like this really this you know this really works. Um, and in other cases, um, there was more you know like we don't see really anything oriented toward this, and I'm suggesting tentatively what a program might look like that deals with that. So to give you an example of the former. Um, uh, where work is already being done, and it was just sort of a matter of holding up exactly what you know what uh, social workers were doing and saying, "Hey, this is this is awesome." The issue, or or the perhaps the condition, the 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 name that the social workers came up with for the experience of survivors that 
that oftentimes draws them back into enslavement. Um, so the, I call them the chains of the soul, the, the sort of emotional, mental, spiritual hooks that uh, a former that an, an, an enslaver still has in a formerly enslaved person, even after you break that relationship through some kind of intervention. The name that the that the social workers I interviewed came up with for that that condition is called captive mentality. Um, and uh, the the social workers that I interviewed were uh, pulling these survivors through. Uh, a rubric, uh, a counseling rubric called uh, TFCBT, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, and they were already seeing, you know, a lot of really, really good things from that. Um, just to explain what what captive mentality is, I, I I found that it has at least the social workers I interviewed used it to describe uh, four kinds of responses to liberation. Uh, that survivors might have. Um, in the first one, um, a, a survivor might undergo forms of physical distress after liberation. Uh, the basic idea is, say you've been um, bonded as a bonded laborer on a rice mill for uh, an extended period of time. You And maybe you were even born into that because you're bonded for like your parents' debt, say for example. Um, it is not unusual for survivors after a liberation uh, has occurred, after an intervention has occurred, um, to experience physical distress because they've spent years of their life needing to have authorization to eat, sleep, and go to the bathroom. And they find that they actually can't physically self-regulate that anymore. Like they have to have somebody's authorization in order to do those basic human functions. And so um, the social workers described it as almost like going through withdrawals. Um, and so that's one form that captive mentality can take. Um, another form it can take uh, is it can, um, a survivor might defer any kind of major life decisions, well actually major, major or my, minor life decisions, unless they're authorized to do something by say, for example, a, a new surrogate master. Um, so, uh, I ran into this in my interview. I had a, I was, I was sitting down with a bonded laborer and I was going through the informed consent protocol, which is sort of like, you know, the, um, th this is who I am. This is why I'm taking this information down. Um, this is what I'm going to do with the information. This is how it might benefit you. Um, here are some things you might need to be concerned about with the research. Those kinds of things is, is what you do in an informed consent. And so I always ask them like three questions. And one of which was, do you understand what I've told you? Uh, I had to do it orally because most of my survivors were illiterate. Um, do you understand what I've told you? Do you have any questions for me? And do you still consent to do this interview? And my translator, his name was Aryan. He's sitting there with me talking with the um, with the survivor. And the answer to the first one was, yes, I understand. No, I don't. Or, uh, I don't have any questions for you. But then when Aryan asked him the third question, there was a long back and forth between the two of them in Tamil. And I'm like, OK, that wasn't a simple yes or no. <laughs> and uh, I asked Aryan after he was talking with him for a little bit what what the issue was uh, or what happened. And uh, he said um, 
he said, literally, whatever my madam says, I'll do. And I, I was like, wait, who is he talking about? He was sitting next to his wife, the survivor was. And so at first I thought it was her, but she was kind of, uh, she mostly deferred to him during the conversation. So it didn't seem to make sense uh, that it was her. Um, Ariane and I were both ma- are both male. And so it wasn't us. And so I, I, I looked at Ariane and I said, who is he talking about? And he pointed to the social worker that referred us. And it was like, oh no, that, you know, that organization doesn't have any investment in you doing this, uh, this interview, you know, it's up to you. Like they, they're still going to give you service. They're still going to give you help. Nothing depends on that. And so we had to have a back and forth and finally said, yes, I consent to do the interview, but that happens a lot where it's sort of like, you know, oh, okay. The, the social workers from the organization that liberated me, they're now like the ones that I, like, I need to get authorization to make any kind of life decisions. And that's, to, to be honest with you, that's kind of a small one. When the social workers have to start talking with these folks about, say, for example, family planning, because they're, um, they oftentimes have quite large families and they're living, you know, very, on, on very low income. They have to be very, very careful with this dynamic to not uh, like push, say, for example, having a vasectomy too hard. Um, because if they do, then they know that the survivor is oftentimes just going to be like, well, the social worker told me to do this. And if they find later that say, for example, they do want to have more children or it can be really alienating. I have this whole discussion on like, I, this wouldn't qualify as forced sterilization for sure, but like this decision could be very alienating for the survivor afterward. And the social workers are totally aware of this. Like this is not news to them. So they they have to be very careful with this dynamic. Um, the third form of, of captive mentality that I, I discovered in the interviews was um, survivors often look at their enslaver as their liberator and their liberators as uh, meddlers in, in, in certain ways. And so they will resist ways in which the, the intervention will try to sever the relationship, even though they oftentimes they, they tend to look at their at their at their captor as sort of like a, a savior figure um, and the folks intervening as as problematic. And that's one of the things that actually pushes folks back in. Um, there's uh, there's a protocol for all of the aftercare homes that I, I was in contact with in Mumbai that once a survivor of sex trafficking comes out, they have zero phone privileges for like the first month. Um, and that's because they oftentimes the first thing that they do is call back up their captor and try to reestablish that relationship. So uh, I started calling my, I was aware of this from my work, my past work in India when I did my interviews. So I started off calling this captive mentality, but with the other, or sorry, not captive mentality, uh, Stockholm syndrome because of the parallels there. But I found actually after I started doing the interviews that maybe that wasn't a good term to use um, because it had elements that Stockholm syndrome doesn't really incorporate. Like for example, the physiological distress, the, um, and some of the other things. Captive mentality ended up being a better label. Uh, And then the fourth form uh, way in which captive mentality seems to manifest is that the survivor comes to think of their captor in some sense as God or a God. 
um, either implicitly or explicitly. Um, and those are the cases that are perhaps the most uh, disturbing, but it also kind of indicates that um, any kind of abolitionist position has to be at least minimally theological, um, because you have to be able to say enough theologically that you can say that, no, that guy isn't God, um, that master is not God. <laughs> so, yeah, and that that actually, in my research, I found that that was something that uh, you can find that belief in, um, or you can find that expressed in uh, antebellum uh, uh, abolitionist literature, like, for example, the, um, the life of Henry Box Brown. Um, he mentions that the folks that were enslaved with him on the plantation thought of the master as God um, in various different ways. Uh, there's a survivor from, uh, from uh, the UK who came over here and is doing social work now in the US who expressed her own, and she's an evangelical, um, expressed her own sort of sense of her relationship with her former captor in terms of the sort of traditional attributes of God, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. My captor has those things. I believe that on a psychological level, even if theologically I know that's wrong. I, I, I've reinforced this because usually this aspect is the is the part where folks are like, now, wait a minute, you're probably overstating something. But I would ask. I would ask things in clinical terms and my my interviewees would respond by saying, you know, oh, so and so thinks of this person as a god like they they found the theological term more germane to what they were to their experience. Um and at first, some folks were like, oh, this is just because this is a, a polytheist Hindu or a, or a sort of tribal religion context in which that is, is common. And there is something to that. I mean, there in, in classical um, Hinduism, superiors can be called gods in, in certain forms. Um, but I, I found it, it's not just out of that sort of theological system. Um, it, you also find survivors that are from sort of monotheistic backgrounds expressing the same thing. So, and in in that that case, you know, again, for for anything that that is dealing with captive mentality, um, organizations that I talk to are already doing some really awesome work, and um, I I didn't really have any suggestions for change as far as that goes. The only thing I think I I, I suggested was there was a little bit of a, a tension that was arising in an Indian context between, you know, this TFCBT thing that seems like a Western imposition and some some caseworkers were resistant to it for that reason. But the, the some of the social workers and all the social workers I, I talked to, I, I think without exception, were Indian nationals. Um, they had done a lot of work to try to to try to make it culturally sensitive to especially a rural Indian setting. So um, there's a little bit of discussion about that, but not much. I mean, they're doing really the reason why I really like that rubric is because if a survivor is showing that form of of captive mentality where they think of the enslaver as their liberator and their liberator as their as some kind of meddler, um, you can't set a survivor down in a therapy session and say, look at what this person did to you. You know, he beat you within an inch of his life, of your life. Um, he has had you submitted to, you know, rape by customers multiple different times. Um, he's done this, he's done that. You can't do that because what the survivor suffering from that form of captive mentality does 
is they immediately rush to that person's defense. Um, they say uh, like, oh, but you know, this person kept a roof over my head. Sure, I didn't like being beaten up, but you know, this person kept a roof over my head. They fed me. How bad could it have actually been? You know, but if you get them in a TFCBT session, one of the things that TFCBT incorporates is like a basic education on what abuse is. And so you you give certain you talk to survivors about forms of abuse. You give them a vocabulary for it. You teach them what things like gaslighting are, right? And um, when they hear about what these forms of abuse are, they suddenly start to connect the dots themselves. They're like, okay, he did that, he did that, he did that, you know, and and they start to realize maybe this individual didn't have my best interests in mind. Maybe this individual didn't, you know, wasn't actually looking out for me. And that's what's what really works about the rubric is the fact that it it equips survivors with a language for abuse. And then they can come to the conclusion that this person was an abuser to them on their own. And they do so with surprising regularity. It sort of trusts that they can figure it out themselves if they just have the right, you know, uh, stuff to work with. To answer that second part, there's a chapter in there suggesting restorative justice interventions for survivor uh, victim victim perpetrators, if you want to call them that. In both labor trafficking and sex trafficking systems, there is um, there are perpetrator survivors. Oftentimes what happens in a sex trafficking situation is someone gets inducted into the sex trade um, as, a, as a victim originally. Um, they reach a certain point in which, say, if it's in a brothel, the customers aren't actually um, uh, soliciting them anymore. They're seen as too old or they're seen as, you know, sort of, this is crass, but worn out, you know. Um, and so they have very little other opportunities for employment after they've been in for so long. And so oftentimes what happens is they go into management in the brothel. They start, you know, like keeping the books or... Um, acting as a madam and inducting other uh, women into sex trafficking rings. So uh, that happens a lot to the point where one attorney that I spoke to, who's an old friend, like got out of the, the business of prosecuting um, uh, survivors because she, she was just like, she was tired emotionally of like being at a, at a brothel when a police raid was done and having a madam that was going to be arrested and sent into the um, sent to jail, um, say, where were you 15 years ago when I was trafficked? Um, which, you know, it's, it was was hard for her. In labor trafficking cases, these folks are called maestries. There actually is a New Testament uh, corollary here, uh, overseers in the parables of Jesus. Uh, uh, enslaved individuals that uh, that uh, drive or abuse uh, or uh, motivate, quote unquote, uh, other enslaved laborers. Um, those folks uh, oftentimes act as headhunters in labor trafficking situations, and so um, they're at the the community. If they, you know, if there's a liberation done of labor traffickers or, or labor trafficking victims, um, oftentimes they all come out as a community because they're oftentimes bonded kind of as a community. So the social workers asked, do you want to be rehabilitated with the maestry, the overseer, the guy who, you know, uh, is one of you, uh, but helped recruit other folks into enslavement. And sometimes the community says yes. And sometimes the community says no. 
for understandable reasons, because these these folks have caused other other human beings significant harm. Um, but it's out of sort of like a, a, a place of really not much other recourse within a, a really violent system. Um, and so there's a suggestion in the last chapter to, to try some restorative justice rubrics for those cases specifically, um, which I had I could not find an organization that was doing anything like that. So it's the most speculative of the of the chapters. So well, that that rubric sounds very helpful uh, for for survivors and for social workers, you know, recognizing the complexity of the situation that there isn't a one size uh, fits all sort of approach that there's some um, adaptation that's that's needed. And I'm wondering, too, because you said that in light of the cap- captive uh, mentality, number four, that abolitionist movements need to be minimally theological. I'm wondering too about the adaptation of of our kind of theological um, approach uh, in the light of these uh, four um, sort of mindsets. Um, you mentioned and you have a you know your your chapter that's focused on a kind of um, you know liberation uh, theology that's going to kind of provide some foundation for for um, your your approach. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What what is that sort of uh, a, approach from like a flyover perspective? But also maybe what sort of adaptation is required theologically as you um, you know are engaging survivors who have these different mindsets? Sure, absolutely. One of the ways in which coming at it from a theological perspective is I, I know a little bit controversial is because I mean especially in an Indian context, most of the organizations that I interacted with were Christian social organizations. Um, And there's a very big worry about, say, for example, proselytization. So oftentimes the social workers that I work with don't really bring up theological topics. But oddly enough, they find them coming up in the interviews anyway, or in their work with survivors anyway. Uh, because again, they have survivors saying, you know, things like this is, you know, this individual is like, like a God to me. Um, and so it, there's a, there's a piece of it that's unavoidable, which I think that there, that there are probably individuals out there that that's going to be uncomfortable. And so in the, in the third chapter, one of the things I'm trying to do is trying to put together a theological rubric that mostly just kind of helps uh, Christians doing the work, try to think about this particular issue. And there are pieces of it that they can use because, you know, um, if you're arguing that this person, this enslaver is not God, um, and you're trying to argue that, you know, that's, you know, um, well, one, that God isn't identified by the person who has the most power in the room, you know, God is the, is the source of all being. Um, if you're trying to make that argument, you can do so and, you know, you can get nods from both a Christian and a monotheist Hindu and a, you know, a Muslim and things like that. So there are some aspects of it that you can definitely do kind of in an interfaith context. Um, some of it is just for um, helpfulness, I think, for the individuals doing the work operating out of a Christian perspective and not necessarily something that I would recommend bringing up. I mean, the social workers are ultimately the ones that know what they're doing there, right? Um, I have no, I, I probably can't give any hard advice on when when this would work and when this wouldn't to bring up um, some of these theological topics. But um, 
one of the things that I do in the, in the book is I make a, a somewhat I'm sure this is, this is going to sound like a somewhat um, controversial argument. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of folks out there, a lot of biblical scholars out there that would say that the Torah is a liberationist document, right? I mean, it's rooted in the Exodus. Um, uh, and, and so therefore the, the, the liberation of God's people from enslavement in Egypt um, I don't know that I've ever heard a biblical scholar call it an abolitionist document, um, because usually when we encounter the Torah, we're a bit disappointed as modern readers to find that it regulates slavery rather than, you know, putting a, 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 a regulation on the books that says just don't enslave people, which ideally we would want. Um, but I actually make the argument that the Torah is actually a very valuable abolitionist resource, and we can make use of it for this particular reason. Our, our rubrics for, for abolition, and this was one of the things I found tested when I actually got out there and did the work, are sometimes a little bit thin. Um, you know, the assumption is that we have the backstop, we have laws on the books that prohibit slavery, and that's all, all that we need. Kind of forgetting, as we oftentimes do, especially in an American context, that having a law against something is not yet abolishing the practice, right? You, you, I mean, if you need evidence of that, you need to look no further in U.S. history than prohibition, right? So we, had, we had a constitutional amendment on the books prohibiting the sale and distribution of alcohol that had basically no effect on anybody's life. Um, <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, the, the networks had to go underground, but you, you know, you know what I mean? It, it didn't prevent individuals from consuming alcohol. The same thing is, is, is true possibly when it comes to abolitionist work, you can have really, you know, well crafted legislation. And I'm not saying that you don't want that. I absolutely do want laws on the books that prohibit, um, enslavement, but we oftentimes don't think of the social factors that lead into enslavement in the first place. Um, and the Torah does, interestingly enough. I mean, for, from our perspective, sometimes we actually do, you know, we have the backstop. Um, we have the, the prohibition on the practice of enslavement, but it's almost like we built a dam and then rooted like six other rivers into it and are surprised that it's failing. Um, <laughs> you know, so basically the idea is when you're, when you're, working with an abolitionist perspective, ideally you want to take abolition from the front end and from the back end. You want to try to mitigate the push factors that lead into enslavement and you want to put up a backstop, you know, a, a legal prohibition on it. And the Torah actually thinks about the, the social stuff that leads into enslavement a lot more thickly than oftentimes we do. Um, it's particularly concerned with the fact that debt oftentimes leads to enslavement. And that's true in the ancient world. And it's true in our world. I mean, a lot of my labor trafficking survivors, the way they got in was excessive debt. Um, and uh, because of that, the Torah is really trying to regulate debt in a way that, um, uh, in a way that oftentimes modern readers are very uncomfortable with, but it, you know, it is very, you know, I mean, especially with the regular periods of, of debt forgiveness that exist in the Torah through the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year. Um, that would be a significant change. And one of the things that I, that I suggest in especially the abolitionism chapter is we might need to take some of those suggestions a lot more seriously than we do. Um, to, to actually get at the root causes of what leads to enslavement, because um, it's, 
and I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. It's, it's odd, interesting, and sad, perhaps, that oftentimes the reaction that we have to this trafficking literature that has exploded in the last 20 years is, wait, I thought we were done with that. I mean, don't we, don't we, um, you know, didn't we get rid of that back in, you know, in the, in the U.S. context in, in 1865, right? Um, but, um, but I mean, some of our surprise is due to the fact that we oftentimes, you know, treat abolitionism as something that we just are by default and didn't have any, you know, didn't do any work toward rather than like continuing to think of the work that would be necessary in order to stamp out this practice. Um, and sometimes there are aspects of the Torah's social program that think about that a lot more seriously than we do that we could potentially learn from. Right. I mean, in the States, of course, a lot of people in the last couple of years have been like, well, you know, racism is not a thing. We got rid of slavery a long time ago and not thinking about, you know, the Jim Crow uh, law era and, and you know, thinking about uh, policing and, you know, our approach to, you know, drugs, you know. So, like, there, there's there's so many other, like you're saying, there's so many other things that have to be addressed, it's not just like, okay, we got rid of the got rid of slavery, boom, we're not racist or something like that. And it's like, there's, yeah, there's a lot more work that needs to be done and a lot more issues of reform in society that need to go along with that for the job to be done. Right. There's still work, there's still work to do. So I think that, that that's helpful. I, I'm curious, you know, cause you, you, you did a lot of uh, work um, interviewing various survivors. What, what were some of the biggest takeaways that, that you had while you were doing that, those, uh, those interviews? Yeah, I, 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 there were survivors that I talked to that even after, you know, because I most of my survivors, I only had a single interview with. But even in, in some of those settings, I could definitely see um, the realities of captive mentality um, and the effect that they've taken on them. Uh, it was it was hard to talk with labor trafficking survivors uh, at, at times and um, hear that they had already taken on a new debt which you know is of such an excessive amount that they probably will lead to their re-enslavement um i talked to some that are absolutely resilient um i had one survivor that i talk about at length in the book um that uh the the ngo had kind of helped her think about uh doing sort of grassroots advocacy for herself and her community and actually was seeing a lot of success um and i had a lot of hope um, for her and her community, um, coming out of it. Um, because the NGO I think is doing a really good job of just not necessarily trying to do, you know, not necessarily just getting her in a program or providing a service, but like helping her to become the kind of individual who can help the community to advocate for itself in some very necessary ways. Um, not that they don't need programs. I mean, they very much do. Um, but, uh, at the terminus point of those programs, the question is what happens afterwards, right? You know, so, um, but yeah, so I met survivors that were all over the spectrum. Some had, you know, very clearly had years and years of therapy and healing and were in a really, really good place. Um, and others that were like, I spoke with people that openly talked to me about suicidal ideation on a daily basis. I spot, I spoke with people that, um, uh, you know, seemed only like one step away from being re-trafficked. Um, and so it was, um, 
yeah, it, there, there, there was a bevy of certain takeaways that I had from, uh, from that. Um, one thing that I didn't necessarily expect was that a lot of the, the survivors found the interviews them and service workers found, uh, found the interviews to be somewhat therapeutic because they don't oftentimes get the chance to talk about some of these topics. So I don't know if there's any one thing that I got from the interviews. It was sort of like all over the place. And I can think of impressions that I had individually after certain interviewees. And it was different depending on who I was talking to. You know, we've been talking about your work in India. And I think maybe a lot of um, people might might have this idea that, you know, human trafficking, sex trafficking is something that happens elsewhere. It happens over there, you know, uh, in, a, in a different country, different part of the world. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the severity of the issue in North America, uh, for example, that you that you're aware of? It's it's a little bit difficult. Yeah, no, I, it's what you said is absolutely true. I mean, it's it's an issue here in North America. Um, you know, it's not just an Indian thing. Um, I got asked several times by folks, why go back to India? If you know, like some folks were like, you live in Milwaukee. There's tons of trafficking that happens in Milwaukee. Why didn't you do interviews of, of Milwaukee, you know, folks that are working in Milwaukee? Um, and I give I give a reason in the intro to the book. Um, to be completely honest with you, the U.S. is about 15 years behind where India is in thinking about some of these issues. Um, and that's that's going to sound surprising because there's a thicker social security network and social services network in the U.S. than there is in um in india and that is definitely true but um i think india just came to terms with the fact that it was a problem significantly or indian organizations um there are places where the indian government is not always recognizing that it's happening but um a lot of indian organizations took the problem seriously quicker than i think we did to give you just one example that i cite in the book so um in a U.S. context, uh, it is still seen as controversial, and I've found this before uh, in my uh, in my work here. Uh, I was I was on a panel that was held by Catholic Relief Services, um, and there were four individuals on this panel: um, uh, a prosecutor, uh, a outreach worker that did sort of street outreach for. Uh, sex trafficking survivors, uh, myself and a survivor of sex trafficking. We're all, all four on this panel. Um, and uh, somebody in the audience asked the question of how individuals on the panel feel about charging uh, survivors of sex trafficking with vice uh, crimes, like, for example, solicitation, um, drug abuse stuff. Um, because, you know, a lot of survivors are self-medicating because they've gone through a ton of trauma. Um, those kinds of things. And I was the only person on that panel. I believe that panel happened in like 2017 or something like that. Um, I was the only person on that panel who was not in favor of charging uh, survivors with vice offenses. Um you know, like the, the the prosecutor said, oh, yeah, it's it's a great idea because at least then they're in the system and we can keep track of them and things like that. And I, I raised my hand and I was like, no, 
<laughs> this is not okay. Because if you're trying to rehabilitate a survivor, um, you know, you have to think about what a rap sheet is going to do to their future job prospects, right? Like if you, I mean, you know, this is, this is the whole thing behind ban the box initiatives in the, in the United States, right? You don't ask for a person's criminal history because if, if you do, then oftentimes, you know, the employer just sort of puts their resume in the trash and they don't um, get looked at. And so if a survivor has that kind of issues, like how are they going to be able to make ends meet or how are they going to get gainful employment if they have that problem with it? They're just going to go right back into the situation that they came from. And on the Indian scene, this is a settled issue and it has been for a long time. You do not charge survivors. Um, the, the fact that in, in, I keep running into context in the States where that's not a settled issue, or it only became a settled issue a few years ago was abundant evidence that for some of the for some of the discussions that the Indian, the Indian, uh, service providers are having, um, those seem like a long way off on a U.S. context. And so I think one of the things that I actually wanted to do with this was say like, Hey, we need to push the discussion further so that we're actually having discussions about things like captive mentality. Um, how are we going to deal with individuals that are victim perpetrators? Um, you know, can we get more services in place? Those kinds of things. Um, uh, Cause we, I don't know that we're, that we're there yet. And in the U S also there's this issue where, there is a lot of emphasis on sex trafficking and very much not an emphasis on labor trafficking, despite the fact that the two, the both of them happen. I mean, you see, you see the stories uh, in the news, not infrequently. I was just reading last month, uh, a story that NPR uh, put up about a, a mass labor trafficking that happened. I think it was on an oil rig um, in off, off the coast of Texas. Uh, every time I go to an anti-trafficking conference, there's always an immigrants' rights group there that's like, hey, some of the folks that we are encountering in our work seem to be fit the trafficking label. Does anybody know, you know, sort of how we can help them? Um, so it's it, it happens in the U.S. as well, but there's very little, very little resources dedicated to it. I mean, of course, we have issues in the United States about bad treatment of labor in general, but <laughs> um, so some of those things might be connected, but, um, but yeah, so that's, uh, it, it has actually been a little bit difficult for me to get involved in a U.S. context because there are a few, uh, how, there's a center in Milwaukee, um, that works on housing issues for sex trafficking survivors. Um, I don't know of any labor trafficking services, um, but a lot of the work in the in a U.S. context is almost solely the work of of kind of professionals, whereas in India, there are, are more sort of like community partnerships and things like that. And it's a little bit easier to get involved. Um, so, uh, yeah, that 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 is one of the reasons why, you know, sort of I went over to India to do some of these interviews and not stuck around here in Milwaukee. Yeah. And perhaps as a as a final question, you know, what what are, what are, what are some of the things that you're 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 currently involved in, or maybe some things that you're working on in terms of your research, um, go, going beyond this 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 book that you've you've just completed? Could you tell us a little bit more about um, what you what you're uh, up to uh, presently? Yeah, 
The other two areas of expertise that kind of this research triggered or maybe a better way to put it is, is uh, the two things I, I, I know now that I need to figure out um, if that this, this work impressed upon me uh, is I do a lot of stuff on um, uh, theology and justice, um, in particular sort of restorative justice. Uh, a lot of work, I'm involved with anti-mass incarceration groups uh, in here in Milwaukee. Um, and that did actually flow out of a lot of this anti-trafficking work because I became increasingly uncomfortable with not only the way in which individuals who are victim perpetrators are treated within the system, um, but also just uh, there are, I don't know that they'd use this term, but there are abolitionist groups in the sense of like abolition of, of prison and policing uh, that I interacted with in, in India. Um, there was one organization that said, we never do raids with police because the, the results are that they traumatize survivors much more than they get folks help. And so their community, their interventions were community-based and they used redemption, um, like, the, like the old school <laughs> term redemption, right? Because redemption in, a, in an ancient context means, you know, if you're if your cousin is enslaved and you don't want your cousin to be enslaved anymore, you go to the person that enslaved them and you literally buy them back, right? So they did interventions out, out of a redemption rubric. And uh, um, so some, th that raised a whole bunch of different questions about criminal justice systems. Um, the organization that I worked for, like I mentioned, was based out of DC um, 15 years ago or 20 years ago now, they basically said, you know, the problem is that the Indian justice system just doesn't look like the U.S. justice system. And if it did, this problem would be solved. If we could get it to look a little bit more like the U.S. justice system. I mean, in a post-George Floyd world or anybody else that you could name in that list, that just seems quaintly colonialist, to be, you know, frank with you. Um, so figuring out, uh, you know, how to deal with harm. Uh, in, in, in a restorative way has been a, a big part of my project, um, which has actually led me to think about things, uh, think about salvation in, in general, because a lot of the ways in which Christians think about salvation is very much affected by and affects criminal justice systems. Um, and it, it kind of always has. Um, this is probably going to be one of my more controversial contributions is that I am, I, and I have been for a while, kind of an outright universalist, um, largely because of seeing some of those connections with, you know, sort of how you think of justice ultimately and how you think of justice as it sort of manifests itself in the here and now and systems right in front of us. Um, so that's work that I'm continuing to do. There's also, I mean, Angela Davis pointed this out years ago. There's a weird species relationship between enslavement and incarceration. The 13th Amendment actually defines uh, incarceration as the only legal form of enslavement, right? Um, neither enslavement nor bonded, bonded labor shall exist except when an individual has been duly convicted of a crime. Um, 
we oftentimes don't think of it in those terms and we would oftentimes resist it, but that's actually how the, the, both the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible think as well. When Jesus comes on the scene in Luke 4 and preaches uh, that he is here to bring uh, liberation to those in captivity, that term means incarcerated folks, that term means enslaved people, and it means individuals who are under some kind of imperial occupation. Um, you look at ancient authors and they don't really see a species difference between those three things. They see them as fundamentally connected. And the more and the more I dive into this, the more and the more I am as well. So that's one thing I've been, one direction that this, this research has been going in. Uh, the other direction is uh, we need to in the US think a lot, get a lot better about dealing with labor. Um, a lot of the, the things that lead to an individual's labor uh, trafficking are not all that different than forms of exploitation that a lot of Americans see day in and day out. It's just um, there are individuals who are perhaps have are more vulnerable within the system than others and therefore liable to the most gross abuses um, within it. And that's that's true here. It's true in other countries as well. But um, I've been thinking a lot about labor justice and especially about unionization precisely because, well, one of its thick history within the Christian tradition, but two, uh, Austin Choi Fitzpatrick uh, did like the exact opposite project that I did. He didn't, he interviewed people who hold slaves in rural India rather than individuals who, uh, he, he wrote, a, it's a it's now a book called uh, What Slaveholders Think. It's fascinating. I'd highly recommend it. Um, but one of his conclusions is that the thing that that scares slaveholders the most in, in rural Indian contexts who are running rice mills or uh, tree cutting industries, they're afraid that their workers are going to unionize. <laughs> so um, that very obviously, you know, has lent itself to me thinking about um, how do we talk about labor? Um, and I mean, again, especially because that realization that the Torah might be more prepared to talk about, you know, the, the, the social factors that lead to enslavement than we are oftentimes, uh, it, it sometimes has better labor protections as well. I mean, you, it's, it, wage theft seems to be the worst kind of crime within the Torah. Um, hell, even if you in Deuteronomy, even if you don't pay a worker on time at the end of the day, it's a form of wage theft. Um, so, uh, and and it's a problem that, uh, I mean, if you ever, if you read Jorg Rieger or anybody else who's been doing research in this, um, wage theft is a massive problem in the United States. You know, the 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 amount of, of it just in sheer dollar terms, the amount of, of uh, money in stolen wages every year since we've kept track of this uh, that's recovered is higher than all other forms of property crime that are reported, you know, so wage theft outnumbers, and that's just what's recovered. It's not what actually happens because in order to recover it, you have to report it and go through a process to retrieve it. But that number dwarfs, even, you know, if you put together uh uh, grand theft auto, if you put together robbery, burglary, those kinds of property crime. And yet it's it's almost completely undealt with. And it's something that my labor trafficking survivors report happens to them. I mean, the way that they get into it is they get extended in debt uh, or extended in advance. They take it on as a debt. And then their, their boss um, finds ways to steal their wages from them. 
you know, they either like charge them money for use of the tools necessary for the job, or they just outright cook the books and straight up steal it from them because oftentimes survivors in a rural Indian context aren't that great of, at bookkeeping. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just um, the, the parallels there have been very telling and, you know, that kind of exploitation, maybe most of us don't experience that form of that kind of labor exploitation to the same degree that survivors do. Very few of us do experience uh, labor exploitation to the degree that my survivors that I talk to do. But there's a lot of folks in the United States that experience something on that continuum, just sort of like a lighter form of uh, the exact kind of practices that lead to the severe violence of um, something like labor trafficking. Well, Dr. Gooding, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us on the podcast to talk about your book, Beyond Slavery. We hope everyone checks it out, uh, published by Cascade. And uh, thanks for the wonderful work that you're doing with people in India who are experiencing this and survivors who are uh, working towards rehabilitation. So just appreciate all, all that you're doing in this in this area. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation. 